I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Today we have the second part of our live taping event, which celebrated a thousand episodes of the podcast. It's my interview with a hometown Bay Area celebrity, comedian, TV host, author, and filmmaker, W. Kamau Bell. If you're not familiar with Kamau's work, he's best known for his Emmy award-winning CNN docuseries, United Shades of America. Kamau's made a career of traveling all over the country and holding the kind of uncomfortable conversations many steer clear of, including tough discussions about race. I mean, he's even interviewed the Ku Klux Klan. That's how much he dives straight in. He met me on stage at Manny's in the Mission to discuss how living in the Bay Area shapes his work and perspectives, what makes our region unique, as well as what our blind spots are. A bit of quick context for the start of my conversation with Kamau. In the first half of the show, I was interviewing union leader Anand Singh and journalist Zoe Schiffer about labor organizing in tech when Manny Yukutiel, the owner of Manny's, brought Representative Adam Schiff on stage. He had been holding a meet and greet for his senatorial campaign in the room next door. Here's that moment. You're very kind to let me interrupt. I just want to say hello. Are you having a good time tonight? Is it, is it a fascinating discussion? All right, well, then I better let you get back to it. Kamau had been listening in the back of the room. We started our conversation with him sharing his thoughts on that awkward moment. Oh, and a heads up, there's cussing in this episode because, well, it's comedy and it's live. Here's my conversation with W. Kamau Bell. It's been edited for length and clarity. I'm excited to share it with you. I'm thrilled to introduce our next guest, W. Kamau Bell. He probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'm happy to do it anyways. It's worth highlighting the breadth of his work. W. Kamau Bell is a stand-up comedian, host, and executive producer of the Emmy Award-winning CNN docuseries, United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. He's, yes. <laughs> He's also the director and executive producer of the four-part Showtime documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby, which premiered at Sundance. He's a co-author of a new book called Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. And he also has a Netflix stand-up comedy special, Private School Negro. Kamau is also the ACLU Celebrity Ambassador for Racial Justice and serves on the board of directors of Donors Choose and the advisory board of Hollaback. Did I miss anything, Kamau? I'm a dad. <laughs> there you go. And he's a dad. And he's a dad. And a husband. And a husband. <laughs> so, Kamau, I don't know if you were listening in, but we I just... I was listening in. Oh, I, good. I agree with oh, everything. Good. Oh, good. <laughs> there was an awkward part in the middle where a pl- politician interrupted. But other than that, that it was great. Happen. That did happen. That did happen. Yes. That happened. We're going to be talking about that I just for felt a like you need while. a... You, once you grab the mic, you need a closer. You know what I mean? Like, you need like a... I mean, I pre- I'm not saying anything, it's, it's, but it just felt like when you got the mic, clearly someone's like, take the mic, Adam. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> I'm a comic, so I recognize flop sweat. <laughs> Aside from that great moment, we were talking about how the pandemic has changed our relationship to work and to labor. You've been very productive during the pandemic. You flew all over the country, filmed new episodes of your CNN series. <laughs> yeah, because my contract apparently said I had oh, to. Oh, you had to. You had yeah. no choice. <laughs> Um, I'm an essential worker. (laughs) (laughs) You also co-authored a new book. Yes. Very productive. So how has the pandemic changed your relationship to work? How do you see it now? (laughs) Well, I'm broken now. Um, No, you know, I think that we were just talking about it. I think that, you know, even this room right now with all these people, we have to recognize that, like, we were for three years, this kind of thing didn't happen. 
You know what I mean? And that not all of us came through the pandemic unscathed. Maybe none of us did, but some of us are more scathed than others. And so for me, like, I don't think, I think for me, there's two things when I think about the pandemic in its proper, like 2020 era, as opposed to the one we're going to live with forever until the climate burns out the earth. Um, is the fact that like there was the there was the pandemic. I, th- me and my wife Melissa, three we had a, a third grader, a kid who had just started kindergarten, and then halfway through there was no more going to school. They were doing Zoom school in the same bedroom, so like they were mad that they were in the back of each other's Zoom shot. <laughs> Nobody, none of the like a lot of the teachers didn't have good Wi Fi, so they would just get dropped out of calls. Then some random kid would be the host of the Zoom meeting. <laughs> And it was always a boy, which was never good. I mean, of course, of course. And it like, and I, so I had a, so our oldest daughter loved school, loved school, started hating school because it was Zoom. And then my middle kid who's like me, hated school. And now she's like, now I really hate school. <laughs> and then we had like a one and a half, two year old who's now become a full wolf child. You know what I mean? Like it's just, <laughs> she's a feral wolf child. Like a lot of those kids are where it's like, some, she doesn't, it, we didn't even understand how this was going to affect us, but like we had to sort of explain to her why clothes were a thing because she spent two years in pajamas. And she's like, why is that a thing now? I was like, we made, you made a good point. We should have put some pants on you during 2020. <laughs> and so like, and then it's like, I'm working in my, like trying to like work, like trying to work every day and everything is on Zoom and that's messing our brains up. Just being like, you know, you have to, you have to like be at, at attention like this in a Zoom meeting all the time. And then one day, as many if you all lived here, then you woke up and the sky was red, and you're like, "Oh, now I'm fully broken. Now I'm now I'm done. I'm right. done." So yeah, I don't think I will ever be the same. Hmm. And yeah, and, I, and you know, and I don't think that like we should be the same. I think that there's this push to get back to normal, mm-hmm. and there's if we are back to normal, you're fucking somebody over. If you're like able to go back to normal, then that means you're screwing people over in mm-hmm. your life. I like that you're making that point. Well, I want to talk more about your career. Uh, as a stand-up comedian, you often use... I'm sort of, semi-re- I'm sort of retired as a stand-up Are, comedian. But... I mean, I'm not, not on purpose. The pandemic sort of retired me. And then, I see. Okay, so that's the way the pandemic maybe changed you. That did. Yeah. It did. I okay. mean, my wife would like me to get back on stage, so I'd stop t- telling jokes in the house. <laughs> uh, but you use comedy as this vehicle to talk about really tough topics and famously... In the pilot episode of United Shades of America in 2014, you met with the Ku Klux Klan, and you even managed to insert jokes there. So, Seemed like a good time. I think so, yeah. But We'd set, seen all the sad Klan shows. Why not a funny one? Make it the funny one. Yeah, make it the funny one. <laughs> but, I mean, seven seasons later, have there been moments for you where comedy just didn't work out the way you intended? Uh, I mean, comedy is always there. It's not like I think people have this idea that like you sit around as a comedian, like where I mean, maybe some comedians do this, but you are you are a funny person before you're a comedian, and if you're a member of, you know, I don't know, if you're a member of a group who's not, uh, can we say white people? I'm gonna say it later. Yeah. Yeah, you're automatically funnier if you're not a white person. There are a few funny white people, but most of them are Jewish. Uh, <laughs> You know, so like you're just automatic. You're always using humor in your life. Like I, I wasn't the funniest of my friends. I was the one who didn't have job skills. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like so. Humor is just a part of how I process the world. There are times in on when I'm doing these things where I'm actually like 
I'm going to tell this, I'm going to make, say this funny thing because I think it will pop the bubble of tension. So certainly it's like a technique that I'm using. And, you know, we edit the show. So when the jokes don't work, they get cut out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but then Magic sometimes, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like, let's see. And then sometimes they really don't work and you leave them in, you know? So it's like, I think that it's just, you know, I, I don't see it as like, I think the hardest part was that sometimes CNN would be like, like, it would ask me to cut a joke out. I'm like, do you remember who you hired? I'm not the smart guy. I'm the funny guy. So that it's sometimes there's that, like, like not wanting me to be jokey in certain ways. But, like, the best thing that happens to me is that, that I think is the best is, like, when we are on the show talking about really serious things. It happened to the Cosby Doc, too. Like, one of my favorite things about the Cosby Doc is that a lot of the, the survivors who showed up in some way – most of them are funny in some way when they're mm. telling their stories mm-hmm. or when they're talking about their lives. And for me, that's what I felt like I brought to it. They are comfortable with me. I can. Be, they feel like they can be funny because I'm funny. And it means that you're not just going to be a one-note telling your story soundbite machine. You're actually able to be a human. And the other thing I like about the doc is that many of the women who are the survivors of Bill Cosby, we didn't f- put survivor Bill Cosby on the screen when they came on. We just put, like, actress or, mm-hmm. you know, Playboy Bunny. And then in the telling of the story, you'd find out, oh, this is a survivor, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. for me, like, the surprise is what it is. And it's like in every, you know, uh, stage works is right across the street, great local independent theater, a lot of solo performance happening over there. And the best way that the solo performance happens is if you tell a sad story with humor, not just telling a sad story. Yeah. Well, speaking about the show, you've made it a point to, to share that United Shades of America started with an all-white crew, mm-hmm. and now you have an all-black camera crew, mm-hmm. and you've added more non-white people on your production team. Mm-hmm. And newsrooms, including my own, love to talk about the importance of diversity, you know, all those mm-hmm. DEI initiatives. But it's still predominantly white. How has that demographic shift empowered your own personal voice? So, uh, so we'll be clear about that. It was actually... Uh, so there's a one of the executive producers of United Shades of America, a man named Mo, Mo Fallon, super white, like super white. <laughs> but and had and I met him when I did Anthony Bourdain's show. He was one of the producers on Bourdain's show for ten years, and we 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 have, we have a bromance. We got a thing going on, and we sort of like and through working on the Bourdain show, he was just like reflected what he thought I was doing well. That no, that at that point I didn't feel like I was getting from the crew on my show, and I was like, I am good hosting. Oh. And so he then, I then moved United Shades, which is me and my friend Dwayne Kennedy, to 0.0, which is the Bourdain production company. This was after Bourdain passed away. And Mo and a lot of those Bourdain people came to my show. And Mo was the one who was like, we need to have an all-black camera crew. He was the one who, because I don't know enough who to hire in the camera department. I don't know who's good or not. So he was like, and what the thing that was essential to him doing that was that he was like, that means we're hiring people whose resumes say they're not ready for these jobs because of racism, because they haven't gotten the opportunities. But that meant that like Mo had to be patient with people who were like either out of their comfort zone and wanted to do a good job, but sometimes were so nervous about doing a good job, they didn't do a good job, and he had to be patient with them and train them up. And, be, and then by the end, it was like a well-oiled machine, but the key part were things that even happened that I wasn't aware of. So we did, an interview, we did a whole episode in Arizona about... Uh, <laughs> about wokeness. I don't know if you've ever heard of wokeness. Uh, when we did it, I was like, are we still talking about that? Well, apparently we are. Uh, and there was an interview I did that was with four people, two of which were like the people who show up to school board meetings and yell but don't have any kids in the school board system. <laughs> you know, Old white people. 
So they just, they just have to be old white people. I'm not saying all old white people do that. My in-laws are old white people. Some of my best old whites are friends. Okay. <laughs> and so I did this interview, and it was just one of those things where it's like a lot, I'd been doing wo- these woke interviews all week with people. This one woman on the street said that Irish and Irish people had it worse than enslaved Africans in America. Yeah. And so the whole week was just like, so before the interview, I laid on the ground for a while just to like center myself. And Mo's like, are you ready? I'm like, give me a minute. And so I did this interview and it was just a lot of bobbing and weaving. And the black crew was all like, man, look at Kamal's doing out there. He's really doing, like they were like, they could tell how hard I was working, even though on camera, just like, I'm like, hey. And the fact that then later they told me that it was like, there's a bunch of people who have my back and see me in a way that no white camera crew, as good as they are, will ever see me. Right. Just that just that sense of understanding. That sense of understanding. That that being able to see you as an individual going through a thing mm-hmm. as a po- and also seeing you culturally and racially in a way that is just impossible to see if you're not a member of the of that group. Right. And it means that like I could like at the end of the I can turn to the camera crew at the end and be like, I don't have to say much. I can just be like, whoo, and they're like, Yep. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And we've had an hour-long conversation in that moment. Right, right. That unspoken yeah. communication. Woo! Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right about that. <laughs> That's a three-hour conversation. Yeah. That I that I had really I had there was white camera members I had really good relations with, but you had to have the you'd have the conversation, which is valuable in its own right, because then they walk up going, I didn't know about that. Yeah. But it's just a different level of yeah. it's it's like a it's a different thing. Using less words is preserving your energy is important. For sure. More of my live conversation with comedian and TV host W. Kamau Bell after a quick break. Back in 2015, Kamau was kicked out of a Berkeley cafe and found himself in a heated debate about race. What did that incident teach him about well-meaning white liberals in the Bay Area? You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Come out, a lot of people think you're a Bay Area I know, native. I know, I know. You were born at Stanford Hospital. I but, was. <laughs> That's but, so suddenly like, wait, wait yes, you want you my birth up, certificate? No. Uh. <laughs> but you grew up... Mostly on the East Coast. You moved to the Bay when you were 24, and you credit the Man, region. you got everything in here. Yeah, I looked you up. Jesus. I did my homework. I love it. This happens like once every hundred interviews where somebody actually did their homework. I this did is, my homework. I did my homework. Fun. You credit the Bay Area for helping raise you, and now that you've traveled all over the country, you've talked to so many different types of people, what kind of lens? Lesbians are my favorite people. Is that oh, next yeah. <laughs> Oh, that wasn't the question? That wasn't the question, but I'm glad you gave that answer. That's yeah, no. It's re- um, Not to essentialize lesbians, because that's another problem. But right. I would just say, if I had to take one group and go, you only get to hang out with these people, it'd be my wife, my kids, and then, yeah. Good. Well, maybe, I don't know, but has, what has the... I messed up your question, No, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. I got it. I still got it. I've been outside in a long time, so that's I'm just fun. talking. But what has, like, the lens of being from the Bay Area given you as you just move throughout the whole country and meet with all these different people? So we are in a bubble. Thank God. (laughs) But the bubble isn't as meaningful as people outside of the bubble think it is. Mm. So we are simultaneously in a bubble, literally where we are right now. This room is a part of that bubble. But that bubble is not as supportive of the people inside the bubble as people in the middle of the country think it is. Yeah. Mm. 
So the the reputation for progressiveness, liberalness, blah blah blah, is way more. If they, if it was what they thought it was, I, this would be perfect. <laughs> but it is not what they think it is. So sometimes you get kicked out of a coffee shop in Berkeley. You yeah. know what I mean? So I'm gonna have a question about that too. I knew you would. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's what I noticed is that. But like you know, traveling around, like every city, every area of the country has its like. Mark Maris talked about this. Has its like cool street at the very least. There's the bookstore, the coffee shop, the library. Where all where the if if that's all, they got the hip section of town, the the boutique that's on consignment, like that section of town. It's just sometimes that is bigger and sometimes it's smaller. So I can like I would travel around and do stand up, and I would sometimes I'd be like, oh man, I got to do a show in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh no! And then I would go to Jackson, and all the blue liberal people of the area would like descend on that for like a meeting and a comedy show. So that our people, my people are everywhere. <laughs> It's just they're not is they're not it's just so I I'm not a, and I'm also lucky because I did grow up outside of the Bay that like my dad lives in Mobile Alabama so I've spent a lot of time in the South mm-hmm. so I don't have that sort of weird that a lot of people out here have the, the South I don't have that yeah which means right. I can go there and be comfortable and slow down my talking and sort of draw a little bit and fit in but has traveling Y'all. <laughs> has traveling changed the way you look at the Bay Area Yeah I mean I definitely think that like. You know, um, of, there's a reason that we live here. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've traveled around enough, and I every now and again I go, could I? You know, could could we move to? You know, and I say I say to Melissa, could we? So I've definitely like pressure tested my ideas of where I can live in this country, not so much out of the country. I got during the pan, during the early pandemic, I was looking at a lot of New Zealand videos. I was just like, <laughs> uh, but like in America, I have traveled around enough to be like, like every now and again I go to Atlanta, I go, ah, no, it's still Georgia. You know, and a lot of black folks, Atlanta has become like, for black people, what Austin became for white people during the pandemic. (laughs) Well, speaking about the Bay Area bubble, in 2015, I got to bring it up. You had this infamous encounter with with the cafe in Berkeley. I was just there yesterday. Oh, were you? Not inside. I'm not not a sellout. Uh, (laughs) There, My mom has a new book that is out called Still Rising. You can find it at all the better bookstores. She had to visit Miss Dalloway's, which is like right up. It's the same. They share a wall with the cafe formerly known as Elmwood. Right, Elmwood. And for folks who don't recall that incident, um, an employee basically shooed you away as you were approaching your wife, who's white, and her friends who are white, and your child was there too, assuming that you were harassing them. You spoke up about the incident. The cafe becomes this flashpoint to talk about race in Berkeley and the Bay Area. And many white liberals accused you of, you know, contributing to the cafe's closure. I mean, like, it's been some time, but what did that incident show you about the challenge about talking about race, specifically in progressive Bay Area? That, uh, you know, many white liberals and progressives think they want it, but they don't actually want it. Mm -hmm. They think they're down for the cause, but they're not actually down for the cause if it affects them. They're not, I mean, literally the name of our book that me and Kate wrote is called Do the Work. Because it's like, stop talking about the work, actually do the work. So it's like an anti-racist activity guide where it's like, you, we are giving you assignments to figure out how to create less racism in the world that you can do, that these are, you, can, you have to do all of them, but there's something in here. And it's sort of a challenge is that you have to actually be involved in it. It's not about voting once every four years. It's not about turning your Instagram square black because of a thing that happened. Yeah. It's not about hashtags. It's actually about like, as you leave here tonight, what can you do to create la- less racism in the world? Yeah. 
That leads me to my next question because you you dive headfirst into these tough conversations. Do you get tired of explaining things to white people? <laughs> First of all, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to talk to my wife, which would be oh, weird. That's so that's <laughs> some white people. Yeah. No, I I I don't know how. I mean, I know how it happened, but I. Ex- I would rather you ask me about it than the black person you work with who doesn't have, who isn't getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. On my tax forms, it says explainer of things to white people. There, yeah. That's an official title, yeah. yeah. I accept it. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. I actually, I have the patience for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I just, and it's also like, it is at this point, it's like, if not me, who, if not now, when, you know? So, yeah. uh, and I'm running for Senator for California. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's why I was talking about Adam Schiff. I'm like, oh, no, I'm running. Uh, no. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, 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 this, I mean, if I look at, like, as a, it's funny, I think about this a lot, especially when the Cosby Doc came out. I was a kid watching Saturday Night Live going, man, Eddie Murphy is so funny. I want to be that guy someday. That's all I wanted. My career then sort of does this. It's not, it, I, I followed my nose. There's, I was like, I don't want to move to L.A. There's all these things I did that put me where I am today that I couldn't have seen where it was going. And it, believe me, even like two years ago, I couldn't have imagined what happened in the following two years. Forget the pandemic, but like I'm directing a four part documentary. Like, you know, so I now accept that that's what I'm here to do. And it's like, it's also like, it's the, it's the most fun way to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I have friends who are activists. That is the real work. It is not fun and it doesn't pay as well. Right. Right. But what I can do with my platform is try to make is try to highlight your activism and and put you on TV and it help you and help get your work your message out. And I've, I feel pretty proud of the fact that specifically in the Bay Area, I put a lot of Bay Area activists on TV yes. on CNN to mm-hmm. explain things like defund the police and explain things about immigration and the U.S. Mexico border. People that I know who I respect who are way smarter than me, and I have the I have this platform to sort of go. Why don't you just do it over here? Mm-hmm. Because of your work and what you've been able to experience and the places you've traveled to, you've talked about the country being at this precarious point where it could change significantly for the better or for the worse. Wondering at this moment, how do you feel about the state of things now? I mean, do you, are there reasons to feel optimistic? No. <laughs> do you want to say more? Oh, okay. <laughs> I think optimism is a fool's errand. And if you have, and if you are, if you are just optimistic, like I am, like I have three kids, I have three daughters. If I was totally, if I was a nihilist, I wouldn't have had those kids. I would have been like, what's the point? But so, so the idea being that like, but I'm only optimistic if we are, and again, I'm not trying to sell books. It just is a phrase that if we're, if we are doing the work and there's a lot of work to do and a lot of ways to engage with the work and it doesn't all have to be anti-racism it could be climate change it could be it could be advocating for some sort of like national healthcare system there's all these ways it could be about raising the minimum wage it could be about uh universal basic income there's all these ways that we can bring this out it could be about like Elon Musk you know something happening that would take all of his money away and distribute it to the poor uh, there's so many ways, like, or just, or taxing the rich. That's what I meant to say. Taxing the super wealthy. Like, I, there's, there's all, there's so many ways that we can make this a more equitable. This country has everything it needs. It's just some people have way more than what they need, and really don't want other people to have it. So I'm not, but I'm not. I think if you say you're optimistic, it's sort of. 
I feel like if I, if I, the guy who's traveling country, say I'm optimistic, then some people go, oh, good, I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Kamau's optimistic, and he talked right. to the Klan. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I'm not, I am not, and I'm, you know, this morning, me and my wife and my mom went to my daughter's school, my 11-year-old, they had an oratorical festival, all in Oakland, they have these oratorical festivals all day today, and my daughter was invited, she sings and plays piano, uh, she was invited by uh, an administrator, uh, to sing, lift every voice and sing. Whoa. I mean, it was just like, you go, oh, that's fun. And my kids do it. And I'm just like, oh, I, I, I'm going to cry in front of everybody. Oh, no. Like, like my 11-year-old knows what that song means, right. knows why she's singing it, and knows it needs to be sung now. Mm-hmm. And, yet I, and, and yet also she's, having a, she's living her best life. Yeah. But she could, you know, the, the, pro, the biggest challenge to, like, being in the position I am is I want, I don't want to raise assholes. I don't want to raise kids who have a level of financial privilege and a level of like, yeah, we've meet famous people sometimes and think that they're disconnected from the problems in the world. Mm -hmm. And so having a, like, I didn't tell her to do it, but this black woman administrator who's like, you need to sing, lift every voice and sing. And my daughter's like, okay, Ms. Breland. And like, and does it. And really like, clearly like if she was playing in the house, like to me, it's like, that's how this has to work. There's got an 11 year old. That's the work for her mm-hmm. to to stand in front of everybody and sing this song, and 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 understand what it means to, to that to our to black folks to lift every voice and sing. Mm. All right, we want to also open it up to the I crowd. Cried. Did you almost cry? I I no you didn't. No I didn't. No, okay. <laughs> but I appreciate what you were saying. I appreciate what you were saying though. Um, are there questions for Kamau? No more time. Okay. We have I talked too long, right? No, that, yeah, talk no, too long. no, not at all. All right, well, but how, how I was it? Was it okay? I think, yeah, it was more than okay. okay right. That was more than okay. Um, thank you so much, um, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. This has been such a special night. Um, I want to just quickly say thank you to our special guests, W. Kamau Bell, Zoe Schiffer, Anand Singh, for being so generous with their time. Shout out to the Fifth Emission crew, King, Sarah, Damien, Joe, Francesca. Thank you all for your hard work every day to make the podcast possible. If you aren't subscribed to Fifth Emission yet, hold on, selfie. If you haven't yet subscribed to Fifth Emission, please do so. Right now you can do it on your phone, on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate the support. This event has been part of Chronicle Live event series at Manny, so stay tuned for our next one. Thank you so much. Take good care and get home safe. Thank you. (laughs) 